I was very naive when I bought a franchise and that I was just thinking, oh, I can make $130,000, which 30 years ago is great money. And, and I'll just do these inventories every day. Welcome to the Franchise Friend Podcast, where we bring you an exclusive look into the world of franchise ownership. All right. Today, I'm joined by uh, Ian Foster out in California. Uh, he has over 30 years of franchising experience. Um, so quite the veteran in our space. Uh, is going to probably share a lot of knowledge with us. So, uh, Ian, I appreciate you jumping on with me today. Thank you, Charles. Happy to be here. Yeah, man. So, uh, originally a, a Canadian and, uh, and moved down to California. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. I grew up in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. Right. So did you move down here for a corporate job or? No, I actually moved down here to buy my second franchise. So uh, that's, that's why I'm here. Okay. So um, what franchise were you, uh, did you start off with originally? Well, actually it's the same franchise, but I bought my second uh, territory. My, I expanded. Okay. So, so are you managing the first territory still in, in Canada? Uh, you know, I tried that for a while and uh didn't end so well. And uh, so I ended up selling it to a really close friend. He's doing great. And, and uh, I, I was happy to be able to uh, help him and make it work. So so is this uh, is this the Sculpture Hospitality franchise? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Great. Share with us a little bit about what Sculpture does and, you know, for people who may not be familiar. It's a kind of an unusual uh, business in that we, we work for bar and restaurant owners and we help them eliminate overpouring and theft and all the things that happen almost every day in a bar. I was really surprised when I first stumbled across this to find out that in the U.S., for example, the average bar is missing 20 to 30 percent of their inventory from mainly overpouring and drinks not getting rung up. And and they but they, the metrics they look at don't actually tell them that, which is you know kind of shocking. I, I would say this: if you ran a car dealership. And one out of every five cars went missing off the lot every every uh, day. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I, I remember I I worked I had a bartending job in college, and uh, they they tried to these little contraptions on top of the liquor bottles where you like you hold it and you try to you know like do one out shot, one out shot, you know, and that didn't last very long, you know. And, now the customer, the guest going into a restaurant or a bar doesn't want to see a contraption on a bottle. <laughs> right, yeah. Exactly. They they want to feel like they're getting the deal, right? They want to see a, they want to see a little bit extra, extra pour, don't they? Yeah. You know, so so you're dealing with a lot of business owners yourself, you know, like you're helping restaurant owners and and food right. owners, you know. Is it mostly bar restaurant? Is that mostly who you're helping out? Yeah, the, you know, we we do work with hotels sometimes or or stadiums, but it's it's I'd say probably fifty to sixty percent of our business is with uh, classic bars, sports bars, and that kind of thing. And then the other thirty to forty percent is probably restaurants with a with a with a pretty healthy bar business attached to it. So, okay, so are people typically like, hey, like where where are they at? I guess in there, like your service, something that they start with. Or is there just so much pain down the road that they're just like, where am I losing my profits? And now no, actually, Charles, none of the above. We generally walking into a restaurant or a bar and introducing ourselves to the owner. Then what we try and do is get them to sit down with us for about 15 minutes so we can explain what we do and, and why and, and what we've seen in the industry. And all along, they're very skeptical. They don't think they're missing much. Sure. You know, they, they all understand that there's some overpouring, but in their mind, it's like five or six percent. And so our, our approach is to say, look, why don't we come in? We'll do like a three week discovery period. Um, we'll come in like 4 a.m. So nobody knows we're doing it. And at the end of that, you can look at the numbers. And if it makes financial sense to use our service, great. And uh, if not, that's fine. 
In 30 years, I think I've seen two bars out of thousands that weren't missing 20%. You know, if you can get in, the key to our business is if you can get a meeting with an owner, you're going to get a client. But getting a meeting with an owner is very, very difficult. You know, they don't want to talk to salespeople and they think that's what we are when we first walk in. Yeah, right. What would you say restaurant owners, you know, what what are some of their biggest obstacles to overcome, you know, like outside of overpouring, you know, like where it, it kind of sounds like to me, like, you know, they may be distracted, right? Like maybe trying to put out other fires, you know, like what are you seeing now in the restaurant business? It's a really, really difficult business that became a lot more difficult uh, post COVID. You know, uh, the, the restaurant economics prior to COVID were not very good. I think the National Restaurant Association's statistics are that uh, the average restaurant, the average one makes 5% profit margin, wow. which is obviously very low. Sure. You know, and there's a lot making a lot more than that, 15 or 20%, uh, maybe not 20, but uh, that means there's an awful lot of restaurants where it's really a job for the owner. You know, and since then, everything's got worse. Food costs have gone up. Labor costs have gone up. You know, if they're using any of these delivery services, they're getting hammered on those commissions as well. You know, it just is a very, very difficult business. So I understand why it's so hard for us to sit down with a restaurant or a bar owner and and have them give us some time because uh, they've got a lot of other priorities, as you mentioned. And and, and not only that, they're you know they're inundated with salespeople walking in, selling them one thing or another. So uh, once we can break through all that clutter and uh, and get a meeting with them, uh, in the long run, they can't believe how much more money they're making. Uh, with our service. So we feel very, very good about what we do. It, it, it's sort of a win-win for, for, for everybody involved. Yeah. So, you know, to take a step back here, you know, Ian's personal journey of like, you know, why did you decide that franchising was going to be a good fit for you? You know, I had no intention of uh, buying a franchise ever. It, it had never really even occurred to me. So I was living up in Canada at the time and I kept getting moved and promoted with a big frozen foods company, $2 billion frozen foods company, to the point where I got the position in Toronto, which, which is where their head office was, as their national accounts manager at the age of like 27. Great job, making lots of money, basically taking people out for lunch for a living. It was, it was <laughs> incredible. I was really happy with the company and, and the way I was treated. And one day I was really early for a meeting uh, with Arby's actually. And uh, so I had like an hour to kill. So I walked into a bar across the street that I used to call on when I was a regular sales rep. And it was about eight in the morning. And the owner, this young guy who, who I'm a really good friend with now, he says, come on in, come in, let me show you what I'm doing. And he's weighing these bottles on a scale. Uh, I'm like, George, what, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I hired this company to do these inventories for me. And they made me so much money, I bought a franchise. And sort of light bulbs went off for me. I'm like, wow, that's a pretty good story that, that a customer was making so much money that they decided to become a, a, to join that business. And so I looked into it and the more I learned about the economics of it, especially the more excited I got. And I thought, you know, I'm 20 at that time. By then I was 28. I'm 28. I don't have a wife and kids. If I'm going to take a big risk in life, this is the time to do it. Sure. So I quit this great job and moved all the way back to Vancouver. Moved into my parents' basement, bought the cheapest car I could find that actually went on fire one time when I was meeting with a client. And <laughs> it was almost a crazy decision, except that um, I, could, I wouldn't have made it later in life. I wouldn't have made it when I was 50, for example, because, uh, you know, you've got mortgages and kids going, you know, saving for college and those kinds of things. So, Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, whenever I'm typically helping people, you know, try to find a franchise, they, they are kind of stuck there. Right. Like, you know, I got two kids. Maybe they're going to college. Maybe they're in private school. 
you know, they're making good money. It's really hard for them to kind of, you know, the way that they live their life has been raised. That bar has been raised, you know, so they need the cash flow, you know, and so it's really hard to transition out of that and leave that corporate job, you know, and so it's really tough for a lot of people. So, you know, it's, it's either, you know, like I like to get people who are like in their twenties, you know, late twenties, like, you know, they don't have anything to lose, you know, so let's do it. And, but, you know, but most of the people that I do help are, you know, in their fifties and they like wish I could have. Well, you, you know, it's interesting. The franchise I bought at the time was very undeveloped. They didn't have a system. They didn't really have any uh, really understanding of the, even the basic economics of the business. It, it was a, a true startup. There was one other franchisee anywhere in the world, and that was the guy, George. So I was the second franchisee. And I think that's why I wouldn't have taken the risk at 50 because it was an unproven concept. Sure. And yeah. the exciting part for us is we got to you know, if we had a good idea and something that worked, all of a sudden everybody was doing it in the, in the company because there wasn't a true system set up. So we had to help the founder go through that process. Yeah. I wouldn't buy a franchise like that in my 50s, but in your 20s, it's fine. I would right. buy a proven fran- uh, franchise uh, with a proven concept. Sure. So so 30 years ago, is that about right? And like sculpture. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And so... You know, I, I guess talk a little bit more about that. Like, you know, have you seen the evolution of like once emerging franchise concept where everybody's kind of feeling the feeling around in the dark here, not sure what's going on and figuring it out as you go? How's that progressed over the past 30 years? Yeah, well, with with a lot of pain at the beginning, to be honest, I remember um, I looked at the founder of our company, a good guy, but not like a, a super entrepreneur. And, and he was doing pretty decently. So my thought process was if he can do well, I, I'll kill it because I had some sales experience. And sure. Was easy. And I went out and I remember I was prospecting eight, nine hours a day. And my, my pitch to restaurant owners and bar owners was, Hey, I'll come in and do it for free for a month and you can decide if it's worthwhile. And my birthday's in April. So I started in, in, uh, just before Christmas. So four months in, I had one client and I was failing miserably. And, um, I was thinking, I've made a huge mistake here. Am I going to have to go back to the corporate world and maybe work a weekend job to pay back my loan? Yeah. And and I remember on my birthday looking in the mirror and saying, well, look, this you still believe in the concept. Let's just do everything differently than what you're doing now because what you're doing now doesn't work. Kind of right. like if you're a Seinfeld fan when George decided to be opposite George. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I changed three or four things I was doing and all of a sudden it started to click and we started to get clients. And um, around the same time we started having with the three or four franchisees at the time, we started having regular conference calls to share ideas. That was, that was really helpful. And I remember about two years later, we had our first convention and, and sort of at the convention, uh, the knowledge and I guess um, experience of the, by that time we had like a dozen or maybe, maybe even 20 franchisees worldwide. And, just all those people together sharing ideas. Just you came out of there so energized, so excited about new ideas and, and really seeing a way to systematize your business. Cause prior to that, you were just kind of winging it. So that was, that was a huge turning point for all of us, I think, and, and the company as a whole. Um, and, and since then it's been, you know, it's sort of a steady improvement in, in the way we do things. Technology's all. Uh, when we did the inventories with, remember that multicolored big pen you had in the third grade? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. Used to kind of like that. Shelf one was red, shelf two was blue. <laughs> yeah. And the, the problem was you could only do small bars that way because you only had four colors and you started drawing different columns. It was, and so when the Palm Pilot came out, <laughs> you can imagine how long ago that was, we switched to taking inventories on the Palm Pilot and scanning the bottle labels 
that was another huge leap forward for us. We could all of a sudden do the inventories in, you know, maybe half the time it used to take us. So, you know, it's been a steady evolution, but with, with some down, uh, you know, ups and downs, uh, like anything, I think. So um, are you a area developer as well? Is that right? Yes, I am. Yeah, I've so, I wear two hats. Okay. <laughs> so you're bringing on new franchisees. Correct. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, where, you know, like, where do you feel as if people get hung up? Not necessarily on the concept, but on taking that leap. Like, where do you feel like people are? You mean to, to actually making a decision to get into it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think one thing we see often is uh, the person we talk to first is really excited and their spouse talks them out of it, yeah. <laughs> which I get. You know, I get that. So that that's one place they get hung up. You know, ours is a very low cost uh, business to get into. So for us, it's not really the, the cost of buying a franchise. It's more the opportunity cost, right? If you buy a franchise, at least our franchise, you're, you might go six months before you're making any decent money. Yeah. And if you had a job paying you up, let's say 120 grand a year, you know, over the six months, you'd make 60 grand. So that's sort of the opportunity cost of it. And if it takes you longer, you start to get worried, right? Because, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have a hundred thousand dollars sitting in the bank to get them through a year and a half. Right. So I, I think it's uh, that and, and fear, uh, simply said, you know, they, they, they don't know if they can succeed in the business. You can't, you know, test it before you buy it. So to speak, you got to jump in. Sure. Yep. Yeah. The fear of the unknown. Right. You know, yeah. So funny. I was, you know, so many people that I've helped and they're very reluctant to bring on their spouse during, you know, the process, you know, yeah. and, you know, I'll tell her about it or, or I'll tell him about it, you know, and, you know, and then I'll just relay whatever we talk about today. And I'm like, it's going to come across as you are convincing them, not as, you know, right. not as you're, you know, informing them. It's, it's going to sound like you're giving them a sales pitch, you know? And so, um, so I've always encouraged people like, you know, your, your wife has to be, or, or husband needs to be through this whole process with you of this whole discovery of figuring out if this is something that you guys want to do. The whole, the whole house has to be on board, you know, but hundred percent. Yeah. I feel it's like it's got to be a partnership really, right? I mean, it's got to be viewed that way that the, the other spouse might not be involved in the business, but they've got to think it's a good idea and be supportive. It's a huge factor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, f I feel like sometimes I have husbands like taking our calls in the closet, you know, and they're just like, yeah, you know, hiding from their wife and that she has no idea that he's looking at businesses. <laughs> Such well, a male ego thing, right? Right. Yeah. So was there, you know, you kind of talked about that time at the beginning where you kind of felt like there was, you know, you were, you know, you might fail, mm -hmm. you know, um, have you had any of those times? along the way, like, you know, like, or has it kind of been smooth sailing? I mean, like there had to have been some type of arc here for the past, you know, a couple, you know, 20 years or so. Like, has there been times where you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I can't do this anymore, or, you know, or you feel like you're going to fail? No, in, in fact, uh, in fact, the opposite that, that uh, one thing that that period of my life taught me was that, uh, I, I, or, or at least made me feel like I could do anything. If I could get through that, which was brutal. I mean, it was really hard that I could, you know, at any obstacle I'd be fine with. So when an opportunity came up to buy franchises in, in the United States, uh, I'm, I decided to change countries and move to the San Diego and start from scratch, so to speak. So I kind of felt a little fearless. But to your point, you know, life isn't always as smooth as you think. So pretty much franchise-wide, all our plans were upended by COVID. 
Yeah. You know, when I looked at this business, I, I thought about what risks there were to getting into it. And, and one thing I looked at was, you know, it, it, prohibition. If the government decided to shut down the alcohol industry, but they already tried that and it didn't work. So I thought, okay, that's one thing off the table. That's not a big risk. Right. I never thought about a pandemic that would shut down every restaurant. Never. Right. Bar <laughs> for, you know, darn near two years in, in the West Coast. So, you know, my trajectory of uh, seeing, you know, and, and maybe retirement down the line got uh, <laughs> definitely disrupted by COVID. We couldn't make a living for really two years. And I, I'm not sure we've fully recovered on the, well, we haven't fully recovered on the West Coast. You know, if you look at our company where we have fully recovered at some places like Florida or Tennessee, where they really didn't shut down the restaurant industry for as, nearly as long. So COVID was a, a huge factor, but, you know, that's, that's just a historical fluke. You wouldn't expect that when you're planning sure. on buying a franchise. Right. Yeah. So uh, does your concept have, do people hire teams or do you have a team? Yeah. In the early days, we went out and did inventories ourselves, but then you, 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 and, and you're very naive when you buy a friend, at least I was, I was very naive when I bought a franchise and that I was just thinking, Oh, I can make $130,000, which 30 years ago is great money. And, and I'll just do these inventories every day. And without really much thought, Charles, to what I was going to do once I hit capacity. So all of a sudden I'm, I can't add any more clients and I start getting referrals. I'm like, well, what am I going to do? Right. And I, I, again, I, I was a pretty bad business person. I ended up hiring a really good friend and I just taught him to do what I do. And he went out and did his own inventories and that worked great until he took another job. And all of a sudden now I had to do all mine and all his and hire somebody. And then sure. we started to realize that uh, having part-time people or having teams out in the field is a, is a more sustainable business model. But you know, and that's sort of the downside of buying a franchise that has no track record is that they haven't thought that through yet. It was exciting to go through that in a good way and a bad way. But, uh, you know, you can afford to be excited and, and go through those tribulations uh, if you don't have a mortgage. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So uh, so how many people do you have that work for you now? Do you have part timers or? Yeah. So we've sort of shifted our business model a little bit, at least in the territory I own. I, I don't, I don't live where my territory is. So we've okay. shifted to a, a hybrid model where the client does the actual counting. Okay. Um, at least in my territory, we've shifted to that. That's not true for our whole company. And um, so I don't have a team of people out there. I have a team of people uh, work in an office helping the client, you know, doing all the data entry and analysis. So I've got a couple of people, uh, three people that work for me doing that. Okay. So like, you know, I guess if you could provide some advice for people who have never hired, you know, or led a team or, you know, been able to delegate, you know, like I've even had problems delegating to my franchises, you know, like sometimes people feel like, you know, they're just the best person to do stuff, you know, like, you know, could you offer some advice on, you know, how to lead a team and, you know, and what some strategies that you've used? Yeah. Well, I think you make a great point. Delegating is very, very difficult because, you probably are the best person to do it. Yeah. Uh, at least you'll do it better than people you can hire uh, in, in the short run. You know, my philosophy, I sort of developed this over time, was that if you can systematize your business, you can start seeing, Bobby, let me interrupt here. The E-Myth is a book that I read a long, long time ago, it, and it really changed my thinking on this. But if you can figure out what roles you do, so when you buy a business, you do all the roles. You're the accountant, you're the uh a salesperson, you're the data analyst, you're the, you're all everything. Um, in our business, you're the inventory taker. And if you can start thinking of those as different roles and figuring out where you add the most value and where anybody can do it. So in our business, really anybody can scan a bottle and count them. 
Right. And so that's a role that I can replace. And the person I hire can do it just as well as I can after you know a month or two. So that makes it a little easier to delegate because you're still keeping the part where you're adding the most value. You know, in, in our business, inventory taking is uh, not very glamorous. You know, you're climbing ladders, you're on your hands and knees looking in the back of a cooler with a flashlight. Sometimes you're well, for us, it was certainly important to have that potential hire come out to an inventory and see what they're getting into. What you don't want is hiring somebody, they do it for two weeks and quit, and now you've got to start all over again. You wasted two weeks training them. Once they're up and running, I think I think the best thing you can be is just a good person. You know, I always tried to every now and again just show up and help them do the inventory, even though I was paying them to do it. And I still pay them for the whole time they were normally going to be there, even though they get to go home, you know, an hour early. The only thing I learned early is that you're better off paying them, you know, an acceptable wage, but maybe a little lower. And then giving them lots of raises in the early days, small raises, but so they can see that as they're getting better and, and putting the commitment in, that I'm going to be uh, rewarding them for it. Sure. So, you know, if minimum wage is $15, I might put an ad in for 16 or 17 because these days it's hard to find anybody. And then once they start, I'm quickly getting them up to like 21 within, say, six months without telling them I'm going to do it. That, that's sort of the key to it, too. Right. Yeah. Are there any other like retention strategies that, you know, like, I mean, you know, like it, I feel like even whenever I had some of my businesses where we've had those jobs of fifteen, sixteen dollars an hour, you know, like didn't you know? It seems like you know they'd leave you for fifty cents or, or yeah. another dollar somewhere else down the street, and you know, so you kind of had to feel as if you needed to do some things that were different, you know, outside the box. Have you have you done anything outside the box, like other than giving periodical raises? Anything? You make a great point, though, Charles. If, if uh, and, and who can blame them for leaving for an extra buck, right? I mean, right. Uh, yeah. it, it's a, it, an entry level job is a low paying job. So if they can make more money somewhere else, you know, I, I can't really blame them. So I, I think we want to be competitive on wages for sure, as much as we can, especially to the point where you know they've got a skill set in this thing that you've helped them develop, and they're, let's say they're making twenty one dollars an hour, but they don't really have any other great skill sets. So it's hard for them to go make thirty bucks an hour somewhere. Sure. And then I think I've just always had the philosophy that I want to make them feel like they're part of my team, part of my family almost. So, you know, I'll have them over for dinner to my house, which is a little <laughs> weird, but I've generally become pretty good friends with almost every employee I've had. And then, and then, you know, if there's a job that pays a dollar more, they probably won't leave for that. Right. Uh, and, or if they're thinking of it, they'll come to me first instead of just giving me their notice. Of course, people are going to leave. I think you've got to get out of the thought process that an entry level position they're going to stay for 10 years. They're, they're probably not just a fact of life. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I, I always kind of like, I think I caught people off guard sometimes when I was going through the interview processes or even after hiring, I'm like, Hey, this, I know that this isn't your last job, you know, like this isn't your last job forever. Right. Like, you know, so how can we help you build some skills here that you can bring on to your next job, you know? And, it would just find, whoa, like, you know, like, what are you talking about? Like, oh, I'm going to be here for a long time, you know, and, you know, knowing that they'd be there for six months or eight months, you know, and that's a good idea. I like it. Yeah. You know, but yeah. again, you know, it's just like it, you know, if we can help you build some skills here, what, what skills can we build, whether it's sales or whatever it might be. And, yeah. you know, so I always try to take an approach that, you know, we, we, we had their best interests, you know, especially as you start to scale and get bigger. So, yeah, and, and kind of uh, building on that, in some franchise systems, there's an opportunity for uh, advancement because there's lots of roles. 
Uh, and ours, the, those roles are limited, but there's a few. So you can say to them, hey, you know, if, if you like this and, and you feel like you're good at it, you know, this is the next role for you as we go along. I don't know when that will be. It depends on our growth. Um, but in some franchise systems, there's all kinds of room for uh, advancement. Sure. It'd probably be helpful. You know, to kind of, uh, you know, take a step sideways here, you kind of recently have dived into Sandler. Is that the franchise Sandler or did you just do some Sandler training? Uh, Sandler training, but it was, uh, it was super interesting. I, I always thought I was a really good salesperson. And the first time I went to a Sandler boot camp, they said, okay, a lot of you guys are good salespeople, but are you good salespeople because you're technically good at sales? Like you, you're, you're adept at uh, working with people and getting them to come to a decision. Or are you good at sales because you, you actually do them and make some effort and you maybe got a little charisma, you can talk to people. And I'm like, oh yeah, maybe that's me. I, I just kind of wing it. And so Sandler really helped me uh, understand the psychology behind selling. And uh, and I, I'm so much more effective now, mainly I think because I don't try to sell people anymore. It's it's more trying to help them come to, uh, you know, on a voyage of self-discovery kind of where you ask the right questions and they either decide that we're a good fit or, or we're not. I think it's a way better approach and, and it's made me a better salesperson. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, is there any sales or, or any Sandler technique that you like the most? I mean, have you, is there one that you, that you use a lot or? Yeah, I think there's two. They have a, they have a concept called an upfront contract where at the beginning of every conversation you have with a prospect, you kind of lay out how long the call, the discussion is going to be. You get their, uh, assent to ask them some questions. So they, they feel comfortable that you're asking them contract and it's very brief you're you're explaining at the end of the so for example the next step could be you might decide we're not a good fit and that's perfectly fine or you might decide we might be a good fit and the next step would be doing x and so that there's no none of this wishy-washy let me think about it that we've we've all agreed at the beginning on on those things so the upfront contract's really good the one the one thing i've actually got on a sticky note pinned to below my computer here it's uh the idea that people don't argue with their own data. So when, when as a salesperson, when you're telling somebody how great your service is and that they have in our business, you're telling somebody they're probably losing money to overpouring, uh, they tend to back away a little bit because you're trying to sell them something. But if you can ask them the right questions so that they say, yeah, I'm worried about overpouring, totally different dynamic. It's their data. They're not going to argue with it. And you don't seem like a pushy, you know, always be closing salesperson. So th those are two of my favorite uh, techniques they have. Right. How yeah. about you? you? You know a lot about Sandler. Yeah. You know, like I always have liked the, you know, I'm trying to think of the way, the way that he, the way he, he, he says it, but it's like kind of like the reverse, you know, like wow. the negative reverse, I think is what he calls it or something. Yeah. And so where is, you know, you almost take it away from somebody, you know, like take, you know, or like, you know, the upfront contract is great, but also take, take the decision away from them and just say, you know, this isn't a good fit, you know, like, well, we, we aren't going to be good for you, you know, and just like, and just take that pressure away of like the nose already out there. The nose already been said, you know, like, let's just, you know, let's just go ahead and say like, Hey, we're not, we're not a good fit. You know, like, let's just go ahead and get down on the table. And then, you know, just really go the opposite direction where they think that you're going to go. They think that Ian's going to come in here and try to sell me this, you know, this stuff that's going to save me all this money. And, you know, you might go and say, Hey, you know, I, there's a possibility I might not save you any money today, you know? And they're like, well, really? What are you here for? You know? And then just completely like change their mind of the direction they think that you might be going, you know? And, 
it's so they, they kind of just like, you know, it, it takes their mind in a different direction. So that way it kind of leaves the door open for you to some, some trust, you know, for you to really, you know, talk to them about, you know, what you really are there to talk to them about. And, and a lot of times that is just to get to know them, understand their business. And the, and the fact may be, you might not be able to sa- save them money. Right. And, you know, even though you know that you probably will, but you know, there's some things that where I think people just don't want to feel like they're being sold, you know, or, or, or the snake oil salesman, they just want to have a real conversation. And so if you can kind of take away the, you know, take away the, the, Hey, are you going to sign today? Get that out of their mind. Then I think that they feel good. About I, I love that. Charles, you're exactly right. And the key is not to do it as a manipulative way to like do a reverse psychology. The, the key is to be very genuine, but we might not be a good fit. People can right. tell yeah. when they're being uh, manipulated, I think, as opposed to right. a genuine, we might not be a good fit. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, and same thing kind of goes with like franchising. Whenever I'm helping people find a franchise, I'm like, you know, there's, you know, a franchise is not made for everybody. You know, yeah. business ownership is not made for everybody. Like, they, you know, there are worker bees out there, and like, we need the worker bees too, and they make good money. You know, like, and then we got people who are really good at running businesses, and then we have people that are really good at following the system but leading the team. And so sometimes, you know, like we don't know if it's going to be a good fit. But like, I, I try to tell that to people whenever I'm first helping them, like, Hey, like I, you know, there, you know, a lot of times that people are, you know, will I be a good franchisee? You know, like, will I be successful? I don't have no idea. I don't have a crystal ball, but you know, we got to take a look and then it's going to be a decision-making process over time. Uh, it may not be a good fit. You know, and I think like if I can get people there and like help them understand, like whether you're going to look at something like a sculpture, hospitality or restoration franchise, you know, like you got to have an open mind and try to, can I succeed in this business or am I more, you know, do I feel more comfortable as a, you know, as a W2 worker and both are fine. You know, and if I tell that to people, you know, like, Hey, like it's okay to say no, there could be a no at the end of this and that's okay. You know, it seems to ease their mind. Yeah, I agree. Hundred yeah. percent. Well, you know, it kind of just you know again, thanks Ian for jumping on. It kind of just like wrap this up. You know, if somebody's looking at sculpture and like you know they they want to do that, or they're just looking at franchising or even getting a business for themselves, like mm-hmm. you know, what kind of advice would you give somebody? You know, if you could kind of go back and talk to Ian again, you know, thirty years ago, you know, like what kind of advice would you give somebody? You know, getting into getting into franchising or Get opening their own business. Boy, that's I could talk for an hour about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> keep it brief. You know, I, I think I think making sure the franchisor has a proven system. I think it's super important to talk to as many franchisees as they as they have and ask them some really intelligent questions. For example, if they're complaining about the franchise, you want to understand what the root cause of that is. Is it because maybe it was a bad fit and they shouldn't have bought this business? Is it because the franchisor is uh, is is not treating them fairly? Or is it because they're not putting in the work? And so you can ask them, like if you're looking at our business and someone's saying, well, I'm not doing that well, you can ask them how much time they spend prospecting. And you generally find they don't spend any time prospecting if they're fake. <laughs> right. uh, so those are, those are good questions. I think really understanding the franchise agreement is a huge issue that a lot of people, they read it, they don't think about it very deeply. Maybe getting a lawyer is a good, good idea to yeah. read the franchise agreement. I think that's really important. And then... And sometimes you don't know this until you take the leap. But if you can really look in the mirror and think about the stress that's going to happen at the beginning and really honestly decide, is that, am I going to be able to handle that? 
you know, I, I've seen really strong franchisees in the early days of their, uh, their business fail. And, and the, one of the key factors, which, which is interesting is almost anybody can take one big setback and rebound from it. But if they have two big setbacks sort of back to back, some people just kind of mentally collapse and are looking for the exit. And, uh, sure. so you've got to have that, uh, I don't know what stick to itiveness, you know, in the long run, I love having my own business. When my kids were little, I could walk them to school every day. So, you know, they come home from school and, and I have a home-based business. So I was here. That part I really like. But the one thing you don't think about when you have a regular job, when you come home and it's the weekend, you're not thinking about your job very often. Although that's changed lately with, you know, you're always available for emails. But sure. uh, if you have your own business, it's, it's, uh, you're thinking about it all the time. So I, I think you, the advice I give people is really, Look at that. Think about the stress and the, and the fact that you can't really just turn it off and decide whether you'd be energized by that or if that will just be crushing to you. And there's people on both sides of that, as you said a minute ago. So those are my yeah. top few things. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. I always like, you know, tell people as they start to dive into the, you know, talk to franchisees, you know, I'm like, Hey, just, you know, be wary. Like you're going to, you may talk to people who are very unhappy with the brand, but they're making hundreds of thousands a year, you know, <laughs> and then you're going to talk to people who absolutely love the brand and they're not making any money, you know? So, <laughs> you know, like you gotta be able to read between the lines a little bit and, um, and ask the right questions. So it's really good advice. That's a great point. And, and that's true. I think that there are people making tons of money, very successful business that just like to complain, I guess, because they, you know, everything right. could always be better. The company could always spend more money on things and, nobody's perfect yep. so, yeah right yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so and it depends on the day that you catch them too you know like you know somebody you know they could have just lost their dog or something you know but that's true <laughs> well ian thanks again for joining us man it's very nice to meet you i appreciate you, you joining us here yeah thanks for having me on yeah.